All right, welcome to another episode of the Baba Guys. My name is Rick Kleiner, and I'm joined here with Jerry Hollinger. Jerry, we got some gifts here today. Nice, uh, we like gifts. Exactly. As we came into the studio, we saw these. Um, most of our listeners, they know we're kind of Bible nerds, even though, by the matter of fact, that was my first choice mm. for our name. We had a couple different ideas for names. It was like Bible Jerks was one. <laughs> that was your idea, I remember. Yeah, that one was, and I, I, really, I still stand by it. And then Bible Nerds. Um, but being Bible Nerds, um, most of our listeners know New American Standard uh, came up with an update uh, in 2020. Do you, do you, did you ever use New American Standard, the 95? Oh, I did all the time. It was very highly touted when I went to college and seminary. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. Uh, the only hang-up I had about the New American Standard, the the 95 update was the the rendering of John 316. They they took the um, traditional for God so loved the world he gave his only begotten. Where uh-huh. more modern translations are using unique or one and only. Yeah, that's better. Um, so the New American Standard 2020 has come out, and we've got copies here. Um, so if you're listening, Lockman Foundation, uh, we need sponsors, mm-hmm. and we'll hook you up. But the New American Standard actually fixes the John 316 passage to my liking. I kind of like that. Great. Still not ready to jump ship, but it's kind of nice to have it. We'll be reading out of it today just for some fun for mm-hmm. our listeners. Um, but, Jerry, we have a question submitted by one of our listeners. Yeah, essentially the question was, can you explain Matthew sixteen twenty eight? And anyone who's studied the Gospels know that that's a, that's a huge issue of interpretation, a lot of discussion on Matthew sixteen twenty eight, And in honor of these new... New American Standards that we have sitting here. I'm going to read that text from the NASB 2020, and then we can talk about what this text is indicating. Uh, Matthew 16:28. Truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That, th- you know, this is... and. Virtually no translation fixes this, but this is one of those unfortunate times when there are chapter divisions in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And if, if you remove the chapter division and you're, you're following along in the Matthew 16 text, you'll notice that the very next event in the text is the transfiguration of Jesus. And when it comes to interpreting the transfiguration of Jesus— which there, frankly, is not a lot of preaching on at all, really the biggest issue with the transfiguration is what is meant by Matthew 16, 28, which has come to be known as the pre-transfiguration prediction. And the way you interpret that prediction in 16, 28 is going to reveal a lot of your eschatology and what is going to take place in the transfiguration, what its significance is. So whoever sent in this question, I can't remember their name, this is a very important text and very important to understanding what is a crucial event but a neglected event in the life of Christ. Could we start by um, taking a look at some different ways people interpret this passage? Because I think we both, you and I both land on the transfiguration, that this is what's, what's being talked about because of the chapter-verse breakup. Yeah, and since you have this prediction, then the issue is what is being portrayed in the transfiguration. And one view is that the transfiguration is picturing the resurrection mm-hmm. of Christ. So this glory that he is manifesting on the mount 
that is predictive of his coming resurrection. Another view that has been held is that the glory of Christ revealed on the mount is picturesque, oddly at first it would seem, of the destruction of Jerusalem and in AD 70. And so it's said that, wow, here he is displaying his glory to these three apostles, and that shows the power and the magnificence he would have when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70. And then another view I'll just mention before we come to our position is that this is a reference to the advance of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And so God's glory or Christ's glory would be shown in the saving of people as the gospel began to move forward, particularly in the book of Acts. So again, the issue is what's the significance of the transfiguration? How does the prediction fit into that? And those are three major ways that this has been taken. Yeah, there's a, there's a few other, if I can, and, and some of the ones you mentioned, and we can kind of put labels on them too. So, for example, the ones who would say that this is a precursor, or should say this is um, the advancement of the kingdom or Christ's role in the church, mm-hmm. that would be held more by the, the amillennial persuasion, mm-hmm. um, maybe even some postmillennial ideas that, that there is no literal kingdom, that right. this is something that exists in the hearts of men. Uh, specifically the church. Another one I've heard is that this is this could be referring to the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Mm-hmm. That could be it. So so kind of building from that last argument of this being Christ's advancement of the kingdom, his role in the church. All right, well how does that happen? Well the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They use they'll use passages from Joel, that that passage of Joel that Peter will preach out of yes. in, in Acts chapter two to to defend that. Um, but there are there are different views. And really what I've noticed is, and and maybe this is going to kind of sound condemning, so I, I don't mean to come across this way, but a lot of times when I have interactions with people who hold to that one of these different views, it's because they have already have a presupposition that their theological persuasion is correct. Mm-hmm. So they're going to read this text with that slant rather than, as you said earlier, look at the context. Yeah, mm-hmm. so, Matthew 17 is next, and there's a chapter break, but it doesn't need to be there because that's what humans did when we put the text together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and that's why I mentioned earlier that the way one interprets 1628 really kind of tips their hand as far as eschatology because Jesus specifically mentions in 1628, some of you are going to see the kingdom right now. Mm -hmm. So if you believe in a spiritual kingdom, if you believe that the kingdom was instituted at Christ's... uh, first coming at some point or that the kingdom was going to be advanced through evangelism, then that's how you're going to view the significance of the transfiguration. And so that, again, that's why the the 1628 is the most crucial part of the transfiguration. So I think we've tipped our hand where we we are sharing that we hold to this is a reference. This is talking about the transfiguration. The first thing being that, because we've talked about this before, being the literary guy that, that, that God's let me be here. Um, is the reference to at the very beginning of chapter 17 with the, the, the three words in the NET says six days later. Right. So that has the idea of a, that just putting it that way, wording it, like using, just using the word later um, indicates that the author of this text, Matthew, held to what he's about to talk about is, a con- is connected to what he just said. Exactly. And that's why all three of the synoptics include this pre-transfiguration prediction, and all three of them 
have the transfiguration as the next thing in the text. So there has to be some kind of connection going on here. All right, so let's talk a little bit more about, we just mentioned that one, but what are some other reasons why um, we hold to the view that this is talking about the transfiguration? Why is that more easily defended from the text? Yeah, I, I kind of, to support that idea, I've kind of labeled my position what I refer to as the transfiguration parousia view, which we can get into. And and the first part of that, as you mentioned, is the transfiguration is the prediction of 1628. And something that I would really hone in on is this whole idea of the kingdom, uh, particularly in Matthew's gospel, as he has Christ and John the Baptist offering the kingdom to Israel, the same kingdom that was described in the Old Testament. And one of the prerequisites for the kingdom to come is that Israel had to come to repentance. And that's why both John the Baptist and Jesus are calling the nation to repentance so that they can begin to experience um, the events to take place for this kingdom. Uh, We know throughout Matthew's argument that uh, this kingdom is offered. In chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew, Jesus performs a series of miracles to demonstrate that he can bring in the conditions of the kingdom. Uh, Eventually, the leaders get involved in chapter 12 and they decisively reject Christ, the Messiah, and Jesus then says, look, you are now under judgment. The disciples, you know, one would think, had to have been very discouraged at that point, and maybe they began wondering, is this thing ever going to happen? Is this going to be pulled off? And so I think one of the things Jesus is doing in Matthew 17 with the transfiguration is he is giving a small glimpse of the glory of the earthly kingdom to come. And by showing that to the apostles, he's saying, look, it's not going to happen now, but here is a mini picture of the glory that I will have when the kingdom does eventually come. And since all of the synoptic writers include the transfiguration after after the prediction, it seems to me that that's why this kingdom as consistently being interpreted has to be in view in Matthew 17. I would like to build on that a bit because in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 21, he he tells them he's getting ready to die. Mm-hmm. And then Peter even says in verse 22, I, I love the fact that he takes him aside and rebukes him. Like he literally <laughs> says, get over here, Jesus. Right. You've got to stop like rebuking Jesus. And so for Jesus to say, hey, you're going to, I just told you that I'm going to be killed and handed over and, and then on the third day be raised. And then when Peter rebukes him, for Jesus to show his glory to Peter, James, and John on the mount is it would give them great comfort. Like, okay, well, he just told us he's going to get killed, but he just showed us this. So we can believe him that he's going to be raised from the dead because look what he just did. Mm-hmm. So it was, I think it was also meant to give them great comfort, especially here in the Matthew account, mm-hmm. to give them great comfort well, for what was about to come. Yeah, and, and I think that fits nicely with what happens after the section you're talking about but before the transfiguration prediction in 1628, where Jesus tells the apostles that if they, if they deny themselves in this life, that they will be someday uh, rewarded by Christ, and when he comes in his kingdom, uh, you know, that's when these things will take place. So that there's a very close connection 
between this whole section. So what could we say then, um, as we're teaching and preaching this, this text, what is the, the takeaway? Of course, we know Matthew's gospel was written to Jewish believers so they would know who Jesus was as the Messiah. That he, I mean, all through the book of Matthew, he puts tons of Old Testament references to verify mm-hmm. Jesus being the, the Messiah, the second Adam, um, succeeding where the first Adam failed. Here he's saying, you, I'm, I'm showing you a glimpse mm-hmm. of my glory that I'm going to show you in the kingdom. So how do we land this? And, and we do this a lot. And sometimes we go, okay, well, where's the application? We even talked about it last week when we talked about application being the toughest part. Mm-hmm. So how do, we, how do we land this plane on the, on, the, on the runway for the people in our pews? Well, to me, it gives the motivation for why we should live the Christian life. Again, going back to um, verses 24 to 27, we are called in this life to deny ourselves, to take up our cross. That's hard to do. I mean, we struggle with that every day. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you wonder, why should I do this? Is it ever going to pay off? Which I don't think is a bad question to ask. Mm -hmm. And that's why Jesus says that when he comes, he will repay when he comes in the glory of his Father he will then repay every person according to his deeds. And he's talking about the apostles here and to us Christians. If you deny yourself in this life, you're going to be rewarded for this when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Now let me give you a glimpse of that glory that is coming. And so to me, that is an incredible motivator Uh, Christ doesn't ask us to live a hard, disciplined Christian life just, you know, for the the sheer fun of it. And a lot of times it isn't fun. But he is promising us, look, this will be worth your while when I return. So, man, I look at this transfiguration. I see a glimpse of the glory to come. And I have his promise that I will be rewarded and have a part of this. Yeah. and, And, again, let me add the idea of the comfort aspect of it. Because as you said, it's tough in our living the Christian life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know every generation has said this, even now more than ever. Every generation before us has said that. But let's be real. We are living in a culture that, that is very true. Um, and mm-hmm. so that being said, I see this as the transfiguration was giving the disciples a glimpse of that whoever they put their faith in, this, this, this guy from Nazareth, Mm-hmm. It's 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 well placed trust because look what he can do he can mm-hmm. pull back the veil and show who he really is and they don't have to worry they don't have to doubt they don't have to have that fear and I think this is what has emboldened personally the disciples after the fact now we know that Peter James and John were the only disciples that actually saw this however. I mean, look at these three. You know, James is the first disciple to be be killed uh, under Herod. Peter himself was, you know, killed under the Emperor Nero. John was tortured enough times, never killed, um, but he outlived them all. Mm-hmm. But their testimony of what they saw on the mountain, you know, John will say, um, Peter will say later in one of his letters where he says, we, we saw the glory of God. Mm-hmm. He's mentioning, we saw the glory of of, of Jesus being unveiled on that mount. It was a, but we, then he says, we, but we have a more sure and prophetic word, talking about the word of the Old Testament and the New Testament writings at that time. So this is meant to give hope where 
they would not, they may have had a, well, a misplaced, so that they know that their, their hope in him is not misplaced. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I was just looking at the text as you were speaking, and I think that Peter's reaction validates this very interpretation about comfort and hope and making a life of discipleship worth it because as Peter is looking at this glory, he, he says, Lord, it is good that we are here. That is on the mount. And I really think Peter was not eager to go back down the mount and take up with the drudgeries of life. He was just relishing in the glory of Christ and the appearance of, of Moses and Elijah. He said, this is really good. And he then a- asks something which has been a bit enigmatic, and I think Peter gets a bad rap here. Uh, Peter asks, shall I build three booths or three tabernacles? And I think Peter has gotten a bad rap a lot of times, and people will say, well, he, you know, he doesn't know what to say, so he just says the first thing that blurts out of his mouth. Really, I think this was a very insightful comment. Peter was essentially asking, shall we celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles? Because in Judaism, the Feast of Tabernacles had an eschatological note to it, when Messiah would return and dwell with his people. And so Peter was kind of conjuring up those kinds of images. And, you know, kind of as a further elaboration on the whole comfort hope idea, you know, humanly, as we think about dying, and I'll just be quite frank here, you know, sometimes it can be frightening. And sometimes I remind myself of passages like this. Here's Peter who has just a small glimpse of the glory of the kingdom. And he just says, I'm good to stay here. I don't even want to go back. And I have the opinion, I'm of the opinion that if we could ask our loved ones who have died and gone into the presence of the Lord, if they had the option, they wouldn't want to come back. Uh, They would rather be where they are. And so here we have this incredible picture of, again, just a small taste of the glory to come that will be revealed when Christ returns at the parousia. Yeah, and from there, like you just said about Peter wanting to stay in the presence, but yet Jesus has still a mission for Peter. Mm-hmm. So he says, no, we got, we got we got we got to go down from this. Even the, you know, the voice of the Father comes from heaven. This is an I'm the NET. This is my one dear son in whom I take great delight. Listen to him. Mm-hmm. So the idea that he's he's going to be telling you some more things, we're not done yet. Peter, mm-hmm. I'm not done with you. Mm-hmm. Um, James John, I'm not done with you. You've got a mission. Yep. And I think that is encouraging to me because we we've got a mission. We can while we're here on this earth, while God still has us drawing breath and turning oxygen into carbon dioxide, we, we have a mission. Mm-hmm. And um, that mission never lets up. That's the Retirement is the presence of the Lord. Yeah, There is no backing off. There is no, I mean, I'll use this kind of phraseology. And because um, I have, and, and you have too, I'm sure, where I got into, I got into ministry work um, really right after, the con- right after my conversion, getting into actually working in ministry, I would say mm-hmm. not, Use, I don't like to use the word secular or sacred, but in ministry work. But then teaching in Christian school, in the college, as a pastor, since I was 24. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm now 20 years into this. And there, there, you would hear the, oh, that's a younger man's kind of game. So like, real talk, for example. Um, you know, last this past summer, I was asked by our pastor to become the interim youth pastor of our church. 
I'm the second oldest pastor on staff. <laughs> and like, wait, everything I've ever learned in ministry was you get the young guy to be the youth pastor, pastor mm-hmm. which is, that's off a little bit, honestly, in my opinion. Um, so I'm, I'm sitting here smiling and laughing at the thought of it. I'm like, oh, okay. But then getting into it, I'm loving it. I'm having a blast working with these teens because I do that every every day at mm-hmm. the school, which I worked as campus pastor. So it just makes sense. I'm enjoying it, loving it. You know, some people might be looking at a guy my age, I'm 44, and go, well, are you still hanging? You still working with teenagers? You still? I'm like, yeah, I got the sweetest job in the world. I get to watch mm-hmm. God change lives every day. He takes people mm-hmm. from the domain of darkness into the, and transfers them into the kingdom of his beloved son, and then he he works and he changes people. I've seen lives restored. I've seen marriages healed. I've seen just amazing things God has done. And so when people say, you know, they tell me what they do for a living and, and I'm like, yeah, I feel sad for you. That's what you, <laughs> that's what your job is. My job is this. And so <laughs> there is no end. So yeah, 44 year old guy can be the youth pastor. <laughs> you know, this kind of thing, there is no retirement. Retirement's death and, <laughs> uh, or becoming Christ. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, thank you for that question, listener. I appreciate that. As always, if you have a question you'd like to send to us, maybe we can put that on the air. You can email us at bobbleguyspodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to also uh, you know, follow us on Instagram at bobbleguyspod and on Twitter with the same username. Um, we're looking for all types of questions, looking for that. Uh, for Jerry Hollinger, I'm Rick Clonard. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>